evening, good afternoon, good God Almighty, Georgia Coleman, two birds, one stone. Today, we are at the SHAP, the Social Hub of Positivity. It's going to be a three-way thing, okay, for all, of, all of you people out there who like the number three, three is the magic number. Today, not only have we got back, as he's never gone away, the wonderful Donna Lee, who, as you know, if you know anything about Candy Arts, is definitely the brains and lots more besides uh, behind the whole thing, whatever that thing is, yeah? The sustainable development agenda. Now, interestingly, because of the sharp, the social level positivity, we meet incredibly interesting people and they get to meet us and that's a debatable thing, but none more so than this next individual, and I'll call him an individual because that's a word in the English vernacular, okay? Um, who came into the shop and then when I got to uh, talk to this inspirational person, I was sort of blown over and we've kept in contact since. And this is actually the inaugural meeting of, of Robert Barnard Weston meeting the wonderful Donna Lee. Now, when I say Barnard Weston, yeah, this is them. They're meeting. This is them really meeting. They just slightly met before this interview, but because we were supposed to have a meeting and we also wanted to do a podcast. We're kind of having a meeting in a podcast where you're literally seeing what happens when you have a social space, right? And you get people in it and they're talking and they're surrounded by brilliant art and the art here is by the wonderful Rhea Melody and the I know about her, right? Why is this guy, why is the Geordie turn up? Why is that guy turn up? Because he likes art, that's why. That's why, right. Ray Melody's art, come and see the new exhibition in the shop. But now listen to this unfold. I don't know where it's going, but this guy is interesting. This woman is fantastically interesting. Between them, off you go. Go on then. So, like the, orders. The, one of the debates that we've had over the years, quite a lot, is around how you communicate issues about responsibility for each other and for the planet to everybody when actually just getting food in your mouth and roof over your head is your main concern. People are pandas, people are pandas. That's the, the basic, the, the name of the debate. How, how do people, if you, if you don't understand the, how we're interlinked naturally and what have you, uh, how, what, what would their priorities be? Well, it's going to be their kids. Yeah. So you can't tell them that they, what about the, you can, but they haven't got the capacity because they're just focused. Sorry, that was it. It was people yeah, yeah. and pandas. No, no, it's true. People, and pa people yeah. or pandas. Exactly. Yeah, but, but sorry, though. again. How you communicate. Um, <clears throat> I, I remember writing a thing years and years ago. Um, I, I did a geology degree. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wrote about was about environmentalism and sustainability as um, quite a long effort. And one of the things that somebody said to me was, yes, people within the environmental and sustainable movement are already the people who've had the opportunities afforded them by the people who don't have those things. So they've had the chance to breathe and think about those issues and try and do, and try and do something. So. Essentially, what he was saying was that there's a sort of class issue here and yeah. a language issue here yeah. and an education issue here that means that some opportunity people, access and to opportunity, opportunity, access, opportunity yeah. that some yeah. people are standing on the shoulders of people who've done a lot of hard work to yeah. enable people to be able to think about those Absolutely. things. Absolutely. So I think it's kind of 
fascinating. So it kind of brings it round all the education bit, all the understanding, all the communication, yeah, yeah. opportunity, understanding something about where people come from without making assumptions as well. Is without making assumptions, I mean, there's a, okay, yeah. so there's a Toltec shaman by the name of Don Miguel Ruiz. Ruiz. Ruiz in the Mexican of his own people, Mexican Spanish of his own people. And he talks about the four agreements that we make. And one of them, if we want to evolve as individuals and help and be helped by our others in our evolution, both human and more than human um, partners. And uh, the first thing he says is be impeccable with your word, which isn't just communicate clearly, as you were rightly saying, because it is includes that, but it's also don't lie. <laughs> you know, because I'll punch you in the mouth. Because I can read them. Yeah. Lies. Mm-hmm. Like there's a few lies in Downing Street, like punching the nose, give them a chance I might. Second, um you know, I'm used to being arrested, it's not um, <laughs> second one is make Don't no try assumption. that at home. Make no assumptions. <laughs> so, so don't lie. Don't lie. Make no assumptions. Take nothing personally. Because yep. when somebody punches you in the nose, it's probably their problem. You know, they're being, yep. they're yeah. just, can I use the F one? Uh, You're probably flipped up. I'm yes. to say that in front of my grandchildren. <laughs> um, you say flip. Yeah. Schmidt. Yeah. And there's even naughtier ones I won't even do. Wow. So, anyway, so they're probably flipped up, you know, they punched you in the nose, but it's their problem, not yours. Yeah. You know, you're just an innocent bystander, probably. Unless you've made it happen in some, yeah. you know, irritating way, in which case it's a collaborative endeavour, right? And there's gain to be had from it, like all everything. And then the final one is do your best. Right? So, be impeccable with your word, uh, uh, make no assumptions, take nothing personally, and do your best. And if you follow that, it's at the beginning of that book I was whittling on about just now. You can't go far wrong, actually, and that's the sh- you know the Mexican Toltec shamans. Uh, they call them Maguales, but they're shamans, Maguales. So isn't it interesting how the number of us, for whatever reason, go through life doing the complete opposite of those things? Yeah. In, in that we're driven by our personal, our sense of ourselves, I mean our ego gets in the way of not taking anything personally, so we take everything personally. Yeah. yeah, that person looked at me like that, that person said that because they're up to no good or they want to arm, you know, they want to do this or whatever. Yeah. So we doubt, we lie because we've done something and the thing, the cognitive dissonance in our hearts means that we don't, we have to justify stuff to ourselves and everyone else, so we lie. Um, and we make assumptions all the time because Somebody said recently, we only ever, we only live and ever know our intent, but we only ever see behaviour, right? So I might know that I'm going over there to look at something, and I walk straight past Ed, don't see him, yeah? He thinks, why is she pissed off at me? Oh my lord. When I say lord, I don't know which lord the lord and dad. That's a little example, but we own. So it's a wonder that you can sort of go back and actually, there's this really sound thing with those things you can't go far wrong if you do that. Exactly, it's so simple. But we do trip ourselves up all the time by doing the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of our context, of our understanding of our upbringings, of our environment, of the whatever's around us. Yeah, and the ego yeah. thing, as you said. Yeah. You know, because it's the ego that's kind of like, ooh, you know, you, that's offended me, or you did that because you didn't do that. Because, and we make it all about ourselves. 
And it's not, because yeah. those people haven't even noticed me. Yes. So yeah. the fact yes. that they did something that I chose to be offended at, and I didn't even know I existed, yeah. is my problem. Yeah. And what do we do when we don't feel important? Uh, aggrandize, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and try and belittle others to make us yes. feel better. Yeah. I saw a picture of my dad, bless him. I love my parents so much. You know that? I don't do religion, but you know, the Ten Commandments about, you know, the bits in the Ten Commandments about honour thy mother and thy father. My mother did more favours for me than I can ever describe, let alone fully give thanks for it. And, uh, and my dad too. Um, but one of the things which was interesting was he tended to be uh, a belittler, right? And he, I, one day I saw a picture of him when he was about, I don't know, three. And he's walking along Brighton seafront, holding hands with mum. And his mum's like six foot up. She was scary. She wasn't an extra large, but she was a medium. And so she could see the future and she used it well. And she was six foot and very, very scary indeed. So my dad's this big, his mum's that big. His dad's even taller. And his brother's a Royal Marine, right? Because he was born large years. My dad was a sort of accident and afterthought that came much later. So I looked at the special thought, of course he belittles everybody because he always felt so small because he was surrounded by mum, dad and brother who were all super capable giants. Mum was a famous medium and she was celebrated as being a very more than merely ordinary medium. She was extra large in the medium world. And his dad was, you know, an accountant. Not about, you know, he was a middle manager sort of accountant, but he was quite, you know, they were relatively prosperous by the standards of the local community. And his brother was a royal marine. Um, so no wonder he felt small. No wonder. So he would tell us how many failings we had at the time, how we would never make anything of ourselves. Brilliant. So I was like, here you go, I don't want to do it. Oh, I used the other one, sorry. And I, so my response to that was, you're wrong, man. I am going to make something of myself. Yeah. And I'm going to do something with this education that I got by virtue of being an angry little grin. And after I'd learned lots of stuff about how the world works, I began to say, okay, well, how do we make it? And when I became a dad, which was the turning point, so I then suddenly thought, I had this imagined conversation with my soon-to-be-born first child. Got quite a few kids. They're all adults now. Some of them have kids. And in this imagined conversation, she said, so, Daddy, what's this world like I'm about to emerge into? And is it going to be safe and healthy and prosperous for me to grow up? And by the way, what's your part in this? And at the time, I was working in ad agencies selling BMWs and Ford trucks and Netflix pension plans and Buckley's holidays for our clients. And I had to say, you know what, actually, it's not entirely healthy, happy, prosperous and so on. And I'm part of the problem. But I promise you, before you pop out, gave me about three months. I'll try and work out how to become part of the solution. And I started a thing called Groundswell, which is like an ad agency for human rights and environment charities. And then that morphed into doing the same thing with corporations and community groups and stuff. And so I still do kind of like top-down for-profit consulting stuff, and I do bottom-up non-profit, you know, pro bono stuff for community people. But it's all the same thing. It's just, those are the two strands of social evolutionary DNA, if you like. You know, that's, what I, that's the way I see it. Which is why when I walked in here, I just thought, this is Loka, which is the name of my non-profit bottom-up change thing. Um, of course, it's local, low-carbon, and Loka, crazy lady in Spanish, my mum, and her mum, and her mum, 
Because they were the ones that raised me through crazy witches, through crazy Welsh witches. Uh, they were locusts. You know? And uh, if you've read your Macbeth, you know what three crazy witches can do. You know? And all you check off all the other weird stuff I learned about in this ridiculous and privileged education that I got for smashing trains up. What is going on? So, so in the um, in the sort of uh, um, advising and supporting, as you said, sort of grassroots not profit organisations mm -hmm. and also um, top down mm -hmm. It's called Robin Hooding. How does that? How does that? Um, in practical terms, work. Are you, are you advising people who are seeking to? Um, do some community work or to set up not-for-profits and are you advising on sort of governance and structure or the dynamics of the people doing it or the actual delivery of whatever they're doing? How, how does it, or, or right across the board? In sort of it is actually, you've, you've actually nailed most of the key disciplines. So the way it works, and it's taken me a long because I've been doing this since 89 when I became a dad. So that's like, I always know how long I've been doing this stuff rather than that. Explicit. I'm always got a problem. You can ask anybody who knows. I became a parent in 1890. You did? Yeah. Good year, 89. You brought down a Berlin Wall? May. Um, July, so three months apart. Nice. The kids ought to meet me. I'll tell you. This one in, the one in question is about to drop twin boys, so the world is going to tremble. I'll tell you, when that one drops twin boys, she is a force to be reckoned with. As are her sisters, sisters and brothers, I'll tell you. Because again, I mean, I'm pausing briefly just on that, yeah, sorry, you know, yeah. because I've got this privileged education, I was able to educate my own kids in the same way I was educated, because I can charge Unilever and Barclays Bank, you know, two and a half thousand a day to go and help them become more sustainable, and then pay some of it to educate my own kids in the same way I was educated, so they can be a force for change, because they have the means to articulate their ideas and their anger and their differences, and, but also do programming work themselves, you know, so yeah. And, but at the same time, I can also, without having to start, and my kids start, do lots of voluntary work in the community. I've written a, uh, an article about this, which I can, I can point you at. It's on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to see it, it's under Robert Barnard Weston, and it's called Community Climate Clubs Resist the Best Approach to Remediating Climate Change Problems That Nobody's Ever Heard Of. And it's about voluntary work in communities that we've been doing. It's dead easy. Look around you, I mean, this place rocks. You know, people doing good stuff because it's good stuff rather than because it makes them good money. But it can make them good money as well. You know, people will be paying like 25 grand for that, for a start. But I know she does it as pro bono. Well, if you're offering 25 grand, uh, Robert, <laughs> as part of a certain loan... Let's crowdfund it. Let's crowdfund it. You can do it this afternoon. Yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah 25 grand. It's it? 25 grand. Oh, it's brilliant. I love this stuff. Yeah. In... in the sense of the personal, I suppose, becoming the political, how do you, I'm just sort of formulating questions as I go along, but how do you, um, are you giving benefit of experience within those sectors? Mm -hmm. And I'd be really interested to know what that experience is. Mm -hmm. or, or um, of theoretical ways that, ways that should be done, if you see what I mean. That should or may. Yeah, because, because it, it's, <laughs> I, I'm, 
can't, I mean, it's, that's masturbation. It, I, I, know, I know it's a massive can of worms. Um, I, I'm very personal, and I think that's true. Can do over the years is that my my main driver is equality of access to all those things. Mm, yeah. I've, I've got my own personal views about private education. Yeah, me probably too. Probably we would. Um, it should be available to everybody. Uh, uh, you you're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to pay for tutoring. You're not allowed. To, no, that's what yeah. I mean. Uh, that level of education should be free for yeah. everyone. Yeah, and the only I way. I can afford to educate everybody. I suppose. We, we, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and the way to do that is pay hefty taxes and yeah. change the world. Yeah. Uh, but. Anyway, or don't have a society have based a society, on money. Exactly. And that's what destroyed Absolutely. us. So and I say destroyed people, destroyed. So those, so UBI, universal we, basic income, and everyone can do what they want. So coming back to, to those sort of experiences, so the things that you have done and been involved in, you told me something about farmers markets. Market. Yeah, we did that. Well, explain that because that in itself so is. Because that's. Really tell these people out there, I know about it. You tell these good people out there. It was fun. It was one of the best. Apart from the children, that's my, one of my you know, proudest moments. Was I walked into the first farmers market. It's not the first. You know, the BBC said, oh, you started the movement. You know, you're an innovator. I'm like, no. It's always been done like this until capitalism came along and actually turned food into a profit engine rather than a feeding and nourishing nurturing engine. Um, so anyway, since we're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, um, there have been big corporations doing food and everything else. So they were ratcheting the price paid to family farms down and down and down. You know, I'm talking about the big, let's name names, you know, the Tesco's, the Morrison's, the Sainsbury's. Um, Paul, I was at school with the recently retired chairman for reasons above discussed. You know, and I love him. He's one of the kindest men, men I've ever known. Nonetheless, the company is part of a system that mines people and planet for money, thinking money is what they want. You know, all rather thinking money is what they need, but it's just what they want. So long story short, I said, how are we going to, you know, a lot of the kids I was at school with, privileged though most of them were, were sons of farmers. It was a very, it was in the Cotswolds, it was an agricultural community, the Royal Agricultural College was just down the road in Sirencester, and I spent a lot of time on my friends' farms during half-terms and exits and days because I didn't want to go home because it was too scared. So being a boarder was great. I left home actually then, you know, I was 11, but I was gone. And um, so long story short, I like farmers, and I like farms, and I like food, and I like people not using it to exploit people and planet. So I said, let's get the farmers empowered. So I figured out from spending all our summers in the um, Ojai Valley of Southern California, for various reasons I don't bore you with now, that actually these guys have farmers markets. They never forgot farmers markets, because all the immigrants from Europe and everywhere else still did farmers markets when they went to America. And so they had continued with them all along. And I used to go into these farmers markets, local bands, it's like walking in here actually, local bands, local people shooting movies, local people having conversations over local cups of whatever they're drinking. And selling food they'd grown. And you say, hey, um, what do you, um, these herbs look interesting. And they'd what is that herb? And they were like, okay, I've been grown by my family for generations. My grandma's over there, she 
picked it this morning. She planted it last summer. She's got re uh, recipes that her grandma taught her before we were even born. So ask her, she'll tell you. I'm like, you don't get this in Sainsbury's, so let's have it in England. So I came back up to Bath, started three years of lobbying the local council in Bath to get a farmer's market there, found a junior by the name of Pat Tuck, who was a Canadian lady who was in charge of what they called Local Agenda 21. Well, I remember that. That's why yeah. we set this up. That's why we set it up. It was, oh, well, good, because that's part of the reason we did this. Mm -hmm. And long story short, Pat actually and I, while we were trying to get the council's heads around and the bureaucracy sorted around health and safety and all that, around the idea of a farmer's market, which took three years, Pat and I got on with Apple Day, which was celebrating local distinctiveness with the Common Ground non-profit, the charity called Common Ground. So lots of local you know, apple recipes and apple varieties and we've given away beautiful farm trees to people who came along and helped us to plant an orchard and all that, mapping the orchards in Bath, lots of apple stuff. Long story short, that became the farmer's market group and Pat and I were able to bring in much more sensible people than, than I am. And the first farmer, we had three pilot days. Day one I walked in, I'd already said to the WI ladies, because I wanted them involved, they know about local produce, local value-added products made from local ingredients since mm. World War One. So yeah. I walked in and I'd said, I'm not coming in until 10 o'clock because I like the lion on a Saturday. But, you know, it'll only just be getting underway by then, so, don't you, you know, so I'll see you about 10 o'clock. And it's around the corner from where I lived at the time, in the middle of Bath. I walked in, there were the WI ladies and a stall with like two fairy plates and three white-faced grandmas, and I'm like, the van broke down, right? And they're like, no, there were five deep, we sold everything in an hour. In fact, all the farmers, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, we sold everything in one hour. It took three years to plan this and prepare the farmers for it. We got full retail at premium price from the well-heeled of Bath to fund farmers who are being bankrupted by the food retail industry, right? In the most unsustainable of industries you can ever imagine. And then the BBC got wind of it, they came and filmed me and my wife and our then small kids toddling around and um, for muddy carrots with the local farmers and saying, you know, so why did you start this? What's the thinking behind it? Hello, you're Farmer Jones, what does your husband think of this idea? Is he? And on it went like that. And then the documentary of which that bit was a, was a Triggered 530 odd more farmers markets, which straight up. And then the food program, also from the BBC, called up and said, You started a national movement. And I'm like, No, you got it. The BBC did that. We just started one market. But we'll take the cubes. And now we're doing it with furniture and fashion and everything else. And that's my non profit stuff called Loka, which we, you know, I hope to be collaborating with the Canon. Absolutely. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. It's inspired, and like you said, uh, you know, I know you have said lots of times that you know, we ultimately want everybody to be able to, to have that. Yeah. Um, how did that? Uh, uh, what, can I just ask the time? Sorry, because I know I need to be back. You need to be back. Bless you. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. And, and, and I know we've. It's all about three. We could probably have several. Of these chats. Oh no, they, 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 yeah, yeah, absolutely, but really just kill it two birds with one stone. Talking a lot Loads of good stuff but came out of that. I suppose what I'm really interested in how to make it possible that it's only, that it's not only a fair few privileged people mm. who go and buy 
a mm-hmm. loaf of artisanal. I wrote. I, <laughs> it's my uh, it's my rewriting of Beasley Street. Remember? Mm. Yeah. It, so so. Go on, it's, Beasley I'm, I'm Street. Not, I, I rewrote. Um, it's gone Yorkshire. No, I wrote. I rewrote. Um, yeah. Oh. Nice one, Georgie Coleman. Cheers. See you. The idea of playing three pounds twenty for a for a loaf of artisanal bread. I yeah. know, oh, cheaper half the price. Right. Is beyond most people. Exactly. It's cheaper beyond most people. Along alongside paying, you know, twenty five p for an apple or. I know. How do you change enough of the world to make? Good food. I mean, George Orwell said a lot about if you keep if you keep poor people badly fed, they won't up. Right? Yeah, 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 right absolutely. Um, and there's still a truth in that. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And um, there's an elitism, an, an apparent elitism so that's real or not, no, uh, around really nice food and people's yeah, access to it. And farmers markets are wonderful for farmers and small and for young mothers and, and, and people are, and people are developing much smaller scale farms and mm-hmm. all sorts of things really mm-hmm. positive things are happening my my sat here and if, you, if you're if, when we've been in croatia you go to the market obviously all far, all markets are farmers market obviously the person from down the road has bought a massive amount of stuff in and and it, and it's well you know it's kind of a, a, a life that, that is what you would hope it would be, that, that, that cheaper food is, yeah. and good food is accessible to everybody. Yeah. So I am intrigued how that market, how that movement moves forward so that it's not yeah, elitism, that, that there's also the means of production, that there's enough of Ooh, that for everybody, that there's enough of that for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Because small, you know, small what about County it costs farms. Loads to make cheese. It costs loads to make cheese. Don't make it. it Don't make cheese. To, it costs lo- lots to make lots of things. I mean, I'm sorry, cheese is just an example, but yeah, yeah. it costs. <laughs> it, costs dairy. it costs a lot. It costs a lot to make <laughs> individual loads of bread. It costs a lot of time. I know we've got a bakery as well. To, if you're not going to do that, you've got bakery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's thoughtful bakery and bars. Yes. yes. Yeah, with, with me and Duncan, yeah. what I do. So I'll tell you something about that. Really. How, how you make that? To answer your question. I, I was talking to somebody recently because there's a new shop opened. In Wiltshire, I'm not going to name names or places. In Wiltshire, I'm not going to name names or places, but they charge quite a lot for loaf of bread. In Wiltshire, eh? and I was thinking, hmm, I know a couple hmm, in Bath. What is the minimum you could sell a loaf of really good bread for? Nothing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's dead easy. Yeah. Or minus money. Yeah. Um, which is what I'm on about. Which is what I'm on about. Mm. There's lots of throwaway comments where people go, oh, I've just recycled this or I've just used this or somebody gave me this or whatever. Yeah. You have to have access to the people that have those things in the first place yeah, in order to get them. I know. So, so that's my, I that's that's okay. my thoughts on so, where does it go from here because those things are fantastic. We want people to have those equality of opportunity and access to good stuff. How do you make that happen given the Potential demand yeah. and availability of resources and everything else like that. Okay, so two main things, if I may. Um, I used to teach at Bath University with a Turkish who used to say to me, You got it wrong, Ron. You know, this farmer's market thing, 
it's all very well you're talking about Robin Hooding, you know, you, you charge £3.20 for a loaf to a yummy mummy. Who can pay that for like, organic coal mm -hmm. uh, At thoughtful bakery, as well as the, far the farmers' market, of course, we used to have the bakery represented at the farmers' market. But the same thing, you know, with cheese, with everything. He said, in Turkey, where I came from, this is, it goes the other way around. So this is, and I've now got quite a lot of Turkish mates because I went out mm -hmm. there to go and find out more about their agricultural economy and their dictatorship. That's another punch in the nose story. It's not going on now. So, um, what the farmers in Turkey do is predominantly agricultural economy, as we know. And in other countries too, obviously. Yeah, I'm sure in Croatia there's lots of that going on too, I hope so. I'm trying to use some Central and Eastern European models on various foodstuffs right now to empower people who've got no money, no home, no hope, no income, no skills, no education, and could turn that whole thing around with fermented foods, but we'll get onto that another mm. So basically, the farmers sell all that they can to the supermarket, so which they're not to and get a reasonable amount because they're not quite as much crowbar. You know. I always think that they're kind of like, capitalists are like sharks with three rows of inward facing teeth and they just grab onto money and won't let go. Get more all your time. Not like fake sharks, but you know, that's how capitalists are. And, uh, and when they've sold what they can to the supermarkets, they then take the rest of it to the farmer's market where it's sold at half the price or a third or a quarter of the price, or free if you're prepared to come and do some weeding or you know, help do the bale carting like I used to in the summer holidays rather than going home on farms around us in the Cotswolds. So that's the way the farmer's market needs to move. Meantime, things like, so we, we started Thoughtful Bakery, but the way we do Thoughtful Bakery is we, we deliberately actually mine the well healed in order to help solve some of the uh, inequality and homelessness and poverty problems. So, example, when we started doing Thoughtful Bakery, Duncan Glendinning and I, which is now 13 years ago, um, I was offered a chance to put one in every branch of Sainsbury's, and Duncan, I'm not going to tell you what he said because it's not publishable, <laughs> but we did. We started growing a lot of our own ingredients and foraging a lot of our own ingredients. And then what began to happen was some homeless people started coming into the shop and saying, hey, there's loads of wild garlic up in the woods. Do you want that? And Duncan's like, yeah, because he's half French, so he really gets with us. He said, we can turn that into wild garlic bread um, and wild garlic pesto, which I still make to this day. It's gorgeous. Mm. I myself. And, uh, but I tell you what, We'll give you um, a £3.20 loaf of organic wholemeal sourdough every week for a year for two carrier bags of that wild garlic, right? It's going to cost us about 50 quid anyway. And to be frank, it's only a quid a loaf to make it. Although he's charging £30 or whatever it is for a you know, tray of loaves for a restaurant, or oh, like £3.20 for the local yummy mummies and daddies. So that's how the homeless, without having any money or homes or, you know, yet maybe education skills and so on, can begin to get better nutrition. They get, you know, one of these loaves lasts more than a week, you know how sourdough is, it's self-preserving. And it takes half a day to eat a slice of that stuff, it's so packed with nutrients. So we pay in bread, but you, the idea is you can also come in and be, learn to become a master baker like Duncan. If you want to train as an apprentice baker, we can pay you in bread, we can pay, and if we pay you in cash as well, you can begin to get from being homeless to being powerless if you wish. Not all of them want to, 
And you can get into a recovery program around any addiction and mental health issues that have you know, presented themselves. But the other thing that's kind of weird, because commercially it works actually, it's amazing. We're not just Robin Hooding the well-heeled of Bath to be able to get some more of this filtered down to those who could do with it when they need a break in all sorts of ways. Because, you know, they've got into trouble, like I did, but I was given a break. And you can't give a break to some of these other guys and gals. But also, it's really kind of weird. Duncan will be down there baking at four in the morning because he's obsessed with making perfect bacon boards. And the phone will go, it's like, Duncan, it's uh, Freddie across the road, you know, homeless Freddie? The guy that does all the picking the wild garlic and stuff? There's a git upstairs, probably pissed, and he's got a brick, and I think he's about to smash your window. So, uh, so those are our full security guys. We don't pay for security, except in bread. Uh -huh. and training and skills acquisition and education mm. and companionship mm. and love. It's like a, a local economic trading well, scheme, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Spiritually it's and it's it's a compassionately. Local. It's like yeah. let's. Well, yeah. Let's is still a problem because only the rich can afford to make... We were the richest oleanaires in Bath, trading in Bath all of us on the mm. let's system. Why? Because we had spare rooms, spare bikes and spare laptops we could rent out for Bath all of us. So we became oleanaires as well as sterling billionaires. Yeah. What, what, what Ed just said, you know, it's that local, local bit that's effective on small scales. Yeah, that's what local is about, and, yeah. And those things, you know, it, it still, I suppose it leaves a wider, a wider question on that having a, a broader impact. Right, but why does, it, why does it have to? You're not amazed that, that yes. someone's oh, it's doing amazing. that? It's amazing. It's, yeah, so, yeah, so for me, I'm saying it's like, wow, wait a minute, how do we reproduce that? Yeah. Right. So that's the that's the that's the thing. Don't reinvent the wheel. You ask the question. I'm sort of like we're almost having an argument. We're not. What I'm saying is like no, no. That's a great when you've got given all the opportunity, and then a lot of people just take it and run. Coming back to actually help and to to lend a hand or to facilitate an opportunity is exactly the counterbalance, I think, to the unbridled greed and blind stupidity of capitalism. And it gives people it gives people so opportunity is, to say, yeah. you know, this, this local thing afford like you said about your, your education, there's a local <coughs> thing happens to to one of us and we pass something on of that to somebody else. So somebody who's benefited from extra bread and housing can go off to another place and start doing their bit. And yeah. it, it's not necessary you know, the, the, in their mind, there's that acknowledgement that somewhere along the line somebody helped out. Yeah. God. But My headmaster hadn't plucked me out yeah. of the life of, yeah. you know, what Hobbes, you know, as a Hobbes the philosopher said, was a you know, nasty, short, and brutal life. Yeah. I would have died of an overdose probably by the time I was like seven. As it was, you know, I ended up getting going to top universities and doing philosophy degrees and ethical business degrees and teaching at universities. I've just been asked by one of the finest universities in the world um, to be a Swindon. <laughs> yes, actually, well, no. <laughs> because they you look at this and they're like, okay, so you're a kind of practical, hands-on sort of doer. I would say we don't want do-goers, you know, we want good doers, and I try and do something for myself. I'm paying my rent right now while we're doing up our zero carbon retrofit and coke. I'm paying my rent to my in-laws by restoring all our teeth because I was trained at that school to do that, as well as to get into Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale or any other university I wanted to walk into. Because the school was not only privileged in the sense of being 
mostly provided to the privileged people who were supported by the education. It was founded in 1920 by the Wills Tobacco family, really. There's an ethical industry. In order to prevent future world wars after World War I. So it's just turned 100 because it was founded in 1920. But I read in the Constitution after I left the school that it had principles that included, it was all boys and all boarders in my day, but it's now co ed and you know, day kids everywhere. Yeah. Um, all boys, they said in 1920, leaving Renkin College shall be as capable with their hands as with their heads. All boys leaving Renkin College shall be as comfortable outdoors as indoors. We had over 100 acres of woods, like a few hundred acres of beautiful rolling Cotswold country. Most of the rest of Gloucestershire belonged to the parents and the kids I was in school with, so we could do what we liked because we did. We were fellow. Brilliant. Um, and, but, you know, privileged fellow. It's kind of interesting. And um, I was taught to restore antique furniture. I've got furniture that was only, that's been owned by 20 people. That's the best form of recycling I've ever Properly restored and maintained, it will last forever. Same as anything, pretty much. You know, the, 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 um, my, my friend, one of my friends from India used to say, uh, when I was being massaged from head to toe as a baby by my mother, he came from kind of Indian royalty, um, she used to talk and teach, download the wisdoms like the Mayan Zero Chief ladies did. And she said to me, he said one day, whenever you're setting Shumar, he's quite famous, um, he's an amazing guy, I love him, and he's taught me so much. And he, she, he said to me and a group of industrial, industrialists I brought him in to wake up, he said, my mother used to say to me, and he didn't leave this process until he was like three or four, because he loved it. And the daily massage from mum, you know, who was like a princess um, in the lived in this palace. And she said, um, Satish, my boy, whenever you create anything, it should always be beautiful, durable, and useful. And that's how I've discovered since a principle William that he's... William Morris. Yeah, William Morris. William Morris. Hey, Morris you know, I exactly, yeah. the William Morris quote yeah. yesterday in an article yeah. on a lovely piece of William Morris art that was reproduced in that gallery. And, um, and of course, William Morris and the, the arts and crafts movement were all around us in the box, or had been in the 19th century. And, then. and so we had, we were steeped in all that. So I can operate a forge, I can repair an 18th century chair, I can French polish a table, because I was trained to do that. At the same time, as I was trained to get into any university in the world and learn how to say all this stuff to academics as well as politicians, as well as business leaders, as well as Darling. And you've evidently kind of um, met and worked along and collaborated with a huge number of people along the way. Of all kinds, yeah. Of all kinds. Um, yeah. Do you think you're an ideas person or do you think you're a doer of the thing once you've had an idea? Well, there's an interesting thing. Because and I have to go in a minute. I keep so it brief then. <laughs> I, do you want me to answer it in Italics. academic <laughs> epistemology systems theory terms yeah. or One other word. terms? Other terms. Whichever okay. terms work. Okay, briefly both. Okay. So, my postgrad um, in, in Bath University I've got to talk with them tomorrow, actually. they're talking to me of course, because it's all the clever women. Participatory action research and cooperative inquiry are the disciplines, the academic disciplines that I was trained in in the last, late in the last century, thanks to Anita Roddick and Judy Marshall 
and Joe Coleman mm -hmm. and Peter Reason and a few other junior spelt with an I I and an A E as in both genders and genius is just a protein to genius to one gender in my opinion. So anyway, participatory action research has a thing called the extended epistemology and in it it says okay there's four levels of knowing. One is experiential knowing. You can't even maybe you can grunt um, acknowledgement or a disapproval of something, but that's about it. Yeah. That's experiential knowing. Then there's presentational knowing. I drummed a paper for that postgrad business ethics in business degree. Yeah. They got a bit pissed off with me, but I didn't train that. So I drummed it. I drummed the way I was trained by the Gambian drum masters to drum. Um, because I couldn't express what I was trying to write. And I was a professional writer already. Yeah. I had been for years. Um, and, and the subject of that paper was my felt relationship with the earth. Had to drum that, and I did. That's presentation. So you've got experiential learning, <coughs> just, <coughs> and then you've got presentational learning. You can mm -hmm. drum it, you can drum it, you can you can dance it, you can maybe embroider it. Yeah. So can I can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah. So, so in, your, in what you're saying about experiential knowing, that kind of means when when you're at the level of I just know because I feel it, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. But I haven't got anything. I couldn't even dance it. I haven't got anything to back it, yeah. me up. I might have a bit of experience that that happened, therefore I know this. So that's your experiential knowing. Yeah, you experience them, right? Your ex your presentational knowing would be that I know it and you're going to feel it alongside me, and that's how I'm going to explain it. Presenta presentational knowing is you paint it, right? Yeah. because you can't speak or write okay. it, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, or you dance it, or you drum it, if yeah. you're me. Okay. Um, I dance it as well, and you're not on dance. Yeah. And then there's propositional knowing, you can speak it and or write it. Yeah. I did in the end put this in a dissertation, and I did give me that master's. Yeah. And then there's knowledge and action. And that's when you, it informs the way you behave in the world. Right. So you actually start the farmer's market rather than just going on about it. Right. You find somebody clever so, so, who can do it. Yeah. And the BBC who can make it happen hundreds of times all over the country. Yeah, and, it, and, in, and in, that, in that doing, it's drawing, drawing the finding out how to do it, the ability how to do it. Not the, wouldn't it be a good idea if... It, it, I start there. Yeah, start there. <laughs> and then it would be a good idea if... And then... How can I do this? What are the things that need to be done to do that? Yeah. And actually getting some of the skills to put up a stall or polish yeah. an apple or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. And I scrum the apples, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Have you ever been to Tesco's up on, um, what is it, Clarion? Where is it? Where's the Aldi? Is? There's a Tesco's. I'm going to tell the world this, right? Tesco's, I hope you're listening. Right, there's people walking past me with my stepmother. Tesco's car park. On the edge of Tesco's car park there's this huge apple tree. I got all of them. What's when we missed and didn't crush? Oh uh, no, chicken. I don't crush them. I eat yeah. them. Prop I still got them stored in my, we call it the Dougie Barda. Yeah. It's the outdoor larder because it's named after Sir Douglas Barda, who's a friend of my family. He's no longer with us. But, um, so um, I'm up the stepladder at Chippenham, one of the Chippenham Tesco's car park picking these apples, and there's all these people living on benefits, walking past me, paying not 30, 25, 30, paying 60 people for, 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 for some of those apples in there. I'm not kidding you. And a mate of mine is the head of sustainability um, for, for Tesco's, and I'm like, man, you've got to look at this. It's not a thing, no. What, it's not just, it's not so much that people are being conned into paying 60p an apple, which, you know, some of them are 30, but some of them really are 60p a pop. Right? For these varieties that are flipping IP now, the, the, the ownership of the breeding, the DNA in there, 
the, 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 the means by which that variety has been created by some sort of, you know, um, um, laboratory process means they can charge 60p because they own the intellectual property, so they say. Yeah. I want to stab it, personally, but apparently not allowed to do that. Um, okay, cool. So, um, I'm grumping the apples in the car park, in the tree in the car park, and they're tastier than the 60p ones. People on benefits are paying 60p. They need to be educated, not only in the academic and intellectual and privileged sense that I was, but in the, do you realise how much more liberty you have than you realise? It's not about whether you're free or not, whether it's fair or not. It's about taking that liberty and saying, I'm on that. My great granddaddy was put down the mines by the English in Wales, having come over from Ireland where the English stole his land, right? My dad was English, so I'm not speaking as a racist here. I'm part English. And he said, okay, I'll go down the mines if you're going to take my kids off here and put them in care because my wife's had postnatal depression and put them in an asylum. So you're going to steal my wife and put her in care. Now you want to steal my kids and put them in care because I haven't got my wife. Hello, you did that. What do I have to do? They said, go down the pits. He said, I'm a stonemason. I'm making good money. And they're like, no, we want you down the pits. He said, we can make good money off you now. He said, give me the night shift. I'm not kidding. This is what happened. And they were like, night shift? It's bad enough going down the pit. Well, okay, fine. You want a night shift? That's cool. We can't get many people down there on a night shift. So he goes down the night. During the day, he's hired and nanny and housekeeper. He's down the pits at night. And during the day he's building his construction company. He ended up with over 200 employees and they flipping well did what he told them to He beat them at their own game. And that's the way people are free to do this stuff if they just notice that they're free to do this stuff. It's not about privilege or no privilege, it's about deciding we're all privileged and stepping up and taking what is yours, your heritage, which is that everybody's entitled to it, but they have to actually go out and figure out ways to beat these silly people at their own game. Like yeah, yeah there's mean, all sorts of ways. But don't fight against stuff. Because yeah. yeah. that's just wasting yeah. energy. They've got armies and billions of pounds. Yeah. Don't fight against yeah. them. Fight, yeah, I can make you really profitable with my sustainability program. But a lot of them I'm only two yeah. and a half grand a And a lot of the messages we receive. And then I'll give it to somebody who needs it. Yeah. A lot of the messages we receive. Yeah, a lot of the messages we receive. It's not for us. Or it's not, it's not yeah, exactly. We don't believe that. Yeah. Have you ever seen more lies than come out of Downing Street right now? <laughs> oh, on that note. Right, we're going to... I need to go. Listen, hold, hold a second, I need to talk to you. So, uh, thank you. Hold a second. So, thank you very much, Robert, Barnard Weston, Donna Lee, Maya. Thank you. So, tune in next week when I don't know what's going on. I don't even know what's going on now, let alone next week. But we've got to go. So, thank you for tuning in, and we will speak to you soon. It's a wrap. A wrap. Yes. Thank you. Spinning at a thousand miles an hour Just another